Hello everyone from the Wildlife Garden HQ, which is now no longer officially our house, but we think it should be our allotment, which we've been busy digging on all day today. And we've seen all kinds of things, the, the gaggle of long-tailed tits. In fact, they've actually made friends with the local blue tit population, so they're now a mixed flock ready for winter, which was quite nice to see. Absolutely masses of them. And we've heard song thrushes. I met a really bright red tiny beetle. Don't know what that was. Need to look it up. And, of course, our great spotted and green woodpeckers, which also do a flyby every afternoon. But for now, the light is fading and that means it's time to go home, make a cup of tea and record you an episode. Welcome to the Wildlife Garden Podcast with me, Ellie. And me, Ben. And we're back in the house after a great day at the allotment. It's been wonderful, hasn't it? Yeah, glorious weather. Yeah, it's been really mild, actually. Too mild, for my liking. Yeah, we keep swinging between being really happy that our central heating hasn't had to come on, therefore saving (laughs) us pennies, but also it's just odd that I'm not freezing to death yet, as I normally am most Novembers. But in fact, shall we just jump straight into our sightings because the mild weather has affected what we've seen hasn't it well it's affected what you've seen i've not seen anything oh yeah you did say this i don't ben sometimes gardens with his eyes shut i think (laughs) i don't know how we do this we work together but no Um, i'm gonna tell you mine first okay yeah go for it my one is the spadgers the the house sparrows that we have in our own garden because we've been feeding them up for years now and we think that the population is expanding, which is great because house sparrows are a declining species. They've gone from what we thought was about nine. Yeah, a couple probably, of years ago. A couple of years yep. ago. And now we counted 14 on the feeders all in one go. Yeah, they're hard to count because they do sort of dive in and out of our ivy hedge at the bottom of the garden. But they're very, very amusing to watch. Yeah, and my ID bits. skills aren't up to noticing the individuals yet. No, and they're actually also now competing with a, a rogue grey squirrel which has decided yes. to eat most of the food that we put out. But we'll, we'll cover that on a different day, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> but no, the, the mild weather has, well, for me at least, meant that I've seen a lot more pollinators out and about than I might expect at this time of year. Certainly on the sunniest days, we've seen all kinds of bees and um, wasps even still collecting pollen and nectar. And a lot of the queen bumblebees, like the buff-tail and white-tail bumblebees, which are busy feeding themselves up, ready to hunker down in some loose soil in, hopefully, your gardens, if you've uh, given them the space to do that. But yeah, they've all been on the wing, haven't they? Like we were talking about with hedgehogs last time, a lot of the insects that hibernate over the winter, well, a lot of the just the animals generally that hibernate over the winter, they take their cue from the temperatures changing. Yeah, of course. So if it stays mild and the plants are still flowering and there's still a food resource out them for them they'll just keep going until uh you know the the cold weather turns and and then they'll they'll hunker down so yeah don't be surprised if you're seeing lots of bees and things out at the moment 
It's just a really interesting thing to take note of, these timings of when things are coming in and going out again. At this time of year, well, actually, it's quite early. Well, as we say, the insects are out late, but it's very early for things like Mahonia to be coming into flower. Oh, yeah, definitely. But they're everywhere now. They are, and it's scented as well. They're actually fully out, and you can really smell them from sort of a few paces away. They're amazing plants. Yeah, and the thing is, you hope that that flowering is going to continue all the way through the winter and into the spring, because normally Mahoney is a really good resource for insects that awake early in the year. Yeah, sort of January, Um, February time. Yeah, exactly. So hopefully they're going to carry on all the way through. Um, But there's other things like winter jasmine is looking really good now. And viburnum bodnatense or bodnatense. It's viburnum cross bodnatense, which is, I think it was developed at Bodnant Gardens. But it's it's a hybrid viburnum and it smells absolutely amazing at this time of year. It's really, really gorgeous. Yeah, and going back to the pollinators, we've also got um, Fatsia japonica looking fantastic in a lot of gardens that we work in as well, in full flower. And in fact, it was on that that I saw most wasps gathering as much food as they could on on the day they were flying yeah oh we should talk about a native one as well which is clematis vital but the old man's beard which yeah. is the native clematis that's i mean the flowering is well over but the seed heads look like glossy silky beards don't they yeah it's combining my my two favorite things plants and beards yeah <laughs> that's nice. yeah they're really really stunning the heads of of this clematis and we've seen birds taking the sort of the fluff from them there'll be mm. a botanical term for that fluff I don't know what the botanical <laughs> well, term seed, is. Seeds, isn't it? It's actually the seed. Well, it's the seed, but it's the the seeds at the end of the fluff, like a dandelion. Yeah, right? yeah. And there is a a name for back to the, the sort of parachute back bit to that the classroom, Ben. Back wind. to the classroom. Yeah, <laughs> no, I've forgotten <laughs> it. Um, but yeah, we've seen birds taking that to build nests and things with. Um, I presume they'll be eating the seeds as well. But then it just looks amazing in the frost too. It does, yeah. Yeah, so if you've got any of that, you're a lucky, you're a lucky person. You need a pretty big hedge to plant that in. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you've got Slightly it, rampant. It's, it's massive. <laughs> but yeah, it is gorgeous. Yeah, definitely one to look out for when you're on a country walk. There's plenty of it about, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And well, if you are out on a country walk, why not tell us if you've seen any field fairs or red wings? Because we've been expecting to see them when we've been out and about and haven't seen any yet no they've definitely arrived because i've seen reports on facebook from various birding groups but yeah we've not seen any or heard any in fact no and and later in the winter we can expect to start seeing them coming into gardens as well as the resources in the countryside uh, are sort of being stripped bare by the other by the populations of them but yeah they're wonderful birds to look out for So what's coming up the rest of this episode then? Well, you are doing the book club for this time, which is Pollinators and Pollination by Jeff Ollerton, Professor Jeff Ollerton, who will be familiarly calling Jeff for this. <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. We don't I don't know, know you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, we are doing our native plant of the week, which is going to be the haw- the not the hawthorn, the blackthorn. Bruna <laughs> you Spinoza. did that. You yeah, should know what it was called. <laughs> I forgot. Uh, but before we go on to that, let's talk about our news. And this time, we're just doing some podcast updates because we are in press Woo-hoo! or sort of digital press. We are going to be in the Parent and Teachers Association magazine. They contacted us and said, "Can we do a bit of wildlife gardening?" Because they're putting a section of uh, about gardening in schools into their latest magazine, which has a readership of a hundred thousand people. 
yeah never heard of it not being a parent or on a pta (laughs) myself but yeah we're really happy to be in that if you are a parent at school and you get this pta magazine you can look at it on their website as well yeah then look out for us because i think that edition is coming out in the next week probably by the time this podcast's out it'll, yeah. that magazine will be out and also we are in the wild about gardens newsletter wild about gardens is a joint project between the rhs the royal horticultural society and the wildlife trusts and they've got a website links to everything will be in the show notes and on their website they have loads of really really good guides they've had one recently on bats they've got one on hedgehogs as well and their latest one is about beetles and it's called bring back our beetles you can like download it's a pdf and it's full of information and practical projects that you can actually do at home so i really really recommend going on their website and uh, downloading some of their guides but they have a newsletter too and we are in the newsletter or rather um, our interview with Helen Bostock, which was a couple of episodes ago, has uh, been featured in there, which is really nice. But that's enough about us. We also want to hear from you because a while ago we did start doing our gardening correspondence from or wildlife gardening correspondence from yeah. around the world. And a few of you lovelies did get in touch and we put you on air. But we've not had any since. I like the way you say from around the world. We got as far as Scotland. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I'm just trying to encourage the people from maybe across the pond. Uh, he's looking at you, Uncle Pete, yeah. <laughs> um, to get in touch. And what we're actually looking for is just five minutes of you recording yourself um, on your phone is absolutely fine. Or if you've got a voice recorder, even better. And we want to know who you are, what you do for a living, because the, we want non-gardeners to get involved in this as well. And we want to know what you love about wildlife gardening, what you're doing in your own plots, and some of the successes that you've had and also some of the failures as well, because I think it's good for us all to be honest with each other about things that haven't gone quite to plan. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah, just try and choose a day that isn't too windy because it can sort of ruin the audio quality. But apart from that, just, yeah, say what you've been up to and then send the clip to thewildlifegarden at hotmail.com. And don't be shy, because the reason we haven't had any gardening correspondence recently is because nobody sent them in. So don't assume that somebody else is going to send one in. If you are thinking about it or you'd like to hear yourself on the podcast, then please do go ahead and record one for us. We look forward to it. Right, now on to the book club for this episode, and it's over to Ellie. Yeah, for some reason I've taken all of the book clubs since we started doing this podcast, and we do need to mix up. The idea actually was for both of us to read the book, but what happens is, uh, well, so far, I've taken too long to read the book, and then Ben's been left with five minutes before (laughs) we went to recording, so it's partially my fault. It's quite hard to read 250 pages (laughs) in a week. Mind you, you are a super quick reader. Yes. So you've got no excuses, really. It doesn't always go in when I do my speed reading. But And this one, actually, so this Pollinators and Pollination by Jeff Ollerton, Professor Jeff Ollerton, is just such a wonderful book. And just as a little background, Professor Jeff Ollerton is an entomologist and he studied pollination ecology for over 30 years. And he's currently working out of Northampton University. He's travelled the world and collaborated with scientists far and wide in this field. And I, for one, am really, really pleased that he's taken the time to write this book. 
as with most books that we review, it's pretty much an impossible task to summarise, and especially for this book, because it's essentially a detailed account of everything he studied himself or supervised the study of by others throughout his 30-year career. I also wouldn't want to summarise it, because if you're interested in knowing more about the subject, then I'd simply say buy the book. I think it cost us about £25, direct from the publisher, which is Pelagic Publishing, and it is an absolute steal for an, what is an academic book. If we convince you that it's going to be interesting to you, go ahead and buy it. It's not necessarily the right book for every sort of beginner wildlife gardener out there. But as Ellie's about to explain, it's got loads and loads of detail about what the pollinators are up to in your garden. Yeah, in general, the book is a relative rarity, I think, in being able to balance the act of drawing on scientific papers galore while also being a really accessible read to the non-scientist. And it's incredibly well-referenced, as you might expect, and packed full of science. And the papers and studies are used to illustrate three broader themes of pollination ecology, evolution and agricultural perspectives on pollination. Climate change, trends in pollinator numbers and diversity and also the importance of our urban spaces for pollinators are all packed into this gem of a book. Jeff says himself towards the end that there were four main motivations he had to write it. These were, firstly, to share his fascination with the world of plants and their interactions with pollinators, which he absolutely does. Secondly, to dispel the myths and misunderstandings that are in circulation about pollination and pollinators. Thirdly, to highlight that there is a hell of a lot of information that we still currently don't have. And the book does touch on the areas where he'd encourage further and ongoing research. And fourthly, to ensure that by writing the book, he wants to help pollinating species and their associated plants to not be lost forever, either through humanity's own negative actions or simply through our inaction. That's a, an easy couple of things to fit into a book, eh? <laughs> oh my goodness. It's huge. Honestly, it's, I think it's about 250 pages, but it just it, is so crammed full of stuff. It's quite a feat. So yeah, I'm very, very impressed. And of those points that I just said, that those motivations, point two, the highlighting of what we don't know, jumped out at me throughout the whole book. Like anything, when you're not an expert in something, like us, it's easy to think that something is just sort of already known by someone out there. Just as a broad example, he highlights that despite scientists knowing the details of pollination for over 200 years, we're still asking really big fundamental questions about its ecological importance. For example the exact number of flowering plants which require animals to pollinate them. Actually, there's a huge dearth of information out there. For example, of the 352,000 known flowering species of plant in the world, we know in detail about the pollination of just 10%. And there are huge parts of the world like Asia, Africa and Australasia, which are not really studied at all well. So I think that from reading this book... Now, when we do our sexual antics part of the plant of the week and we go into some detail about pollination, I am going to celebrate when the information is there because it's just not a given. Yeah, and we have tried to do previously an episode on honeysuckle, which you'd think there would be loads of papers written about. And I found it really hard to find some some good information on what's actually going on with the pollination of it. And now I know that 
there's actually just quite a lot of species for which there isn't very much information Precisely. or that information is in the minds of naturalists who've actually seen these things but it hasn't necessarily been written down in a way that's sort of accessible to everybody and another example is the Mezarian, which is going to be part of our botanical mystery coming up in the next episode because again actually getting hold of good information about that plant has been surprisingly tricky Of course, as well as candidly identifying the gaps in our knowledge, there are also a lot of facts packed into this book. So I thought that I'd give a quickish rundown of some of the things that I learned. Starting with chapter two, Jeff looks at the sheer diversity of pollinating species across the globe. The media in the UK, which tends to skew things somewhat, shall we say, has tended to make us focus on bees when we garden for pollinators. And while they're a really important group, the truth is far more complex – Groups of species are ranked in the book from most to least diverse across the world using the number of species within a group which are known to pollinate. The butterflies and moths come in at number one with 141,600 pollinating species globally, which is over double the 70,000 known bees, wasps, ants and sawflies, within which bees make up just 20,400 species. However, while it's important to acknowledge and understand the numbers of different species within a group, that isn't enough to show their relative importance in providing pollination services. You also have to consider population size, physical characteristics, behaviour and abundance. For example, going back to the bees just for a minute, in the UK we've got 24 species of bumblebee, many of which are well known to gardeners, but there are six or seven species which are particularly important due to their large population size. As well as that, some within the group will be more effective than others at transferring pollen thanks to features such as how hairy they are. Yeah, and some species of bee, when they are in the flower, they do this thing called buzz pollination, Mm. which is their actual act of buzzing around dislodges more pollen than some of the other species of bee. So it can be how the actual individual species are behaving even as they're actually sort of hovering around those anthers holding the pollen that can make all the difference linked to this huge diversity but mentioned in a different part of the book jeff is very careful to dispel the perpetuated myth that the honeybee is the best pollinator of our crops and wild plants in reality they account for about one third of pollination in total In addition, in some places where honeybee populations are maintained at really high densities, it can negatively impact on our wild pollinator populations because of competition for the available floral resource. Yeah, this is a a controversial topic and we're going to be covering it on a future episode all about bees. Oh, definitely. I mean, I I think most things in this book can be unpacked into multiple episodes. Yeah, well, there has been some recent news on the native honeybee, actually. New colonies found at Blenheim Palace. Yeah, my my neck of the woods, that is. Yeah. Outside the world of bees, though, other pollinator groups worldwide include beetles, flies, thrips, birds, true bugs, springtails, and amazingly, termites and cockroaches. Larger animals can be pollinators too, including mammals, in particular bats, and even lizards make it onto the list. In total, a whopping 350,000 different species are known to pollinate. And that is probably an underestimate. Yeah, because those are just the ones that people have seen actually doing the deed. (laughs) We're we're literally learning things probably right now. There are papers being written about these things. So it's no wonder that the plants in our gardens, which after all come from all around the world, have such a huge variety of flower shapes and styles. Indeed. Of those pollinators, I wanted to briefly talk about the flies in particular. Flies. (laughs) You being fly girl. (laughs) Dr. Erica McAllister. Yeah, we once heard Erica on a 
It was a Radio 4 show, wasn't it? Yeah. And whenever somebody talked about pollinators and bees and butterflies, she just kept going, Flies. Flies. <laughs> it was great. Sorry, and carry that, on. It sticks in my head as yeah. well. Um, but I wanted to talk about them because they're often a misinterpreted or even forgotten group of insects. And fly pollination is shown in the book to be almost as common as pollination by bees. But like everything, it's not straightforward because there's a massive diversity in how flies pollinate. Some flies behave more like bees, visiting flowers to feed on nectar, like the hoverflies, but not all flies are interested in nectar, so plants have some really ingenious ways to convince flies that their flowers are a good place to do other things like mate, lay eggs or feed. It's a great example of how flowers are not simply passive players in pollination and that we should give them due credit for their manipulation and interaction with pollinators, all of which has been developed over millions of years of evolution. But back to flies, we actually need a botanical klaxon here, Ben, because I learned a new botanical word. I still don't have a klaxon sound. Damn you. Uh, Just imagine a klaxon, everyone. (laughs) Um, It's kleptomyophily. Hold on to your botanical pants, because this is just insane. To understand this, we need to know that when spiders catch insects, or some insects, the trapped insects can release a range of chemicals, which are in turn sensed by a group of flies that then fly in and try to steal the insects off the spider. Kleptomyophily is where plants mimic the scents given off by trapped insects, which then attracts in those flies looking for a meal to nick. By landing on the flower, the fly is then tricked into pollinating the plant. How crazy is that? That is crazy. Evolution is amazing. And if you think that isn't happening in your own garden, well, it could even be happening in your very home. In fact, if any of you own the houseplant Serapegia linearis subspecies woodii, otherwise known as hearts on a string, like we do, you'll be fascinated to know that in its native range of South Africa, it's pollinated by flies in the genus Forsipomyia, probably terribly pronounced, (laughs) which when not being tricked into landing on plants are normally a blood-sucking species. And when this plant is actually grown in Europe, it even attracts in a different species of fly from the same genus. But as yet, scientists don't know exactly what about the plant is bringing in those flies. Yeah, so it could be that that plant is releasing some sort of blood smell that's attractive to those flies. and Possibly. And Professor Jeff Alton has a particular fondness for the the group of plants that this Serapegia is in. So let's hope that he's uh, finding out the answer. With more science. Yes, we'll get back to you. (laughs) (laughs) Heading into our gardens, we also have the cuckoo pint or Arum maculatum, which attracts in owl midges by delightfully smelling of animal dung. And I also highly recommend people look up the owl midge because they're actually incredibly sweet, fluffy things, despite them liking poop. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) that's lords and ladies, by the way, Arum maculatum as well, if anybody knows it by that. One outcome of reading this book is my new respect for the often unnoticed work of pollinators and the dizzying complexity and diversity of pollinating systems. A whole section is devoted to the agricultural perspective on pollinators, which we rely on to provide many foods. If you're interested in this topic, I can only encourage you to read this book because I can't do the detail justice in five minutes here. Let's just say that we absolutely rely on pollination services to produce a lot of our foods. But something I found very interesting is that higher yields don't just depend on pollinator abundance, but also diversity. This is a stark fact because the way we farm in increasingly monocultural and intensive systems has actually been shown to reduce pollinator diversity. In fact, we've read studies elsewhere that have suggested that gardens can have an equal or even greater diversity of pollinators than farmland. Yes, that's true. And work of previous guests on the podcast, uh, Nick Chew, 
has helped demonstrate that and uh, he's shown some of the difference in diversity between farmland and even between urban nature reserves and gardens and allotments with gardens actually coming out top. Yeah, it's all fascinating stuff. But as well as food production, I also enjoyed being shown the other ways in which pollinators benefit us in the production of non-food crops like fibres, construction materials and also pharmaceuticals. Things we probably all forget about day to day but really rely upon. To illustrate this, Jeff uses two symbolically important plants to us in the West. Holly and mistletoe. Both inedible, but mainstays of our Christmas decor and folk traditions. They require insect pollination to produce their berries as they have male and female flowers which are held on different plants. But both plants are worth about two to three times more at market when they have berries. Yeah, because if you go and buy holly with berries for your age, you're not going to buy it if it's got no berries on it. Nope. Yeah, I, thought I mean, a... I don't know these people who go and buy holly. Some people do. <laughs> I mean, it's everywhere. <laughs> Just go and take a bit. But mistletoe is a bit harder. It is, yes. But I thought it was a really ingenious way of actually quantifying the value of pollinators. Like he actually went to, a, I think it was an auction where they sell off masses of holly and mistletoe for oh, Christmas. Yeah. So yeah, really fascinating. Yeah, mistletoe is big business. It is. Throughout the book, Jeff points out the myriad other examples of plant and pollinator interactions that shape the world that we live in, ranging from soil formation, nutrient and water cycling, food, fuel and medicine production, effects on our climate, regulation of soil erosion and flooding, pest control, and even our health and well-being through spiritual enrichment, recreation and aesthetic experiences. Plants look nice. (laughs) They do. Basically, we really can't underestimate their importance, I think is the bottom line. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That huge level of importance means that this book naturally covers some pretty large topic areas. And I think I should say that this is in contrast to some of the more general wildlife gardening books that we've covered in our book club so far. So I think I'd say, like Ben mentioned at the beginning, that if you're really new to gardening and wildlife gardening, then I wouldn't necessarily say to start with this one. Yeah, it doesn't give you loads of uh, sort of practical gardening advice, does it? Tidbits. I was going to mention this. But of course, this recommendation is with a big caveat that everyone is different and you all have varying amounts of time to give to reading. And like I said at the beginning, it is a fantastic book for all. Not least because alongside the global topics, gardens do feature heavily in this book. And indeed, Jeff Ollerton, like lots of ecologists, is himself a gardener. Despite not being specifically about wildlife gardening, there are many parts within the book that can inform the practices of all of us wildlife gardeners. Jeff highlights the importance of diversity of structure, of plants and of management. And in the book, he talks about doing this both in gardens and on a bigger scale. One very interesting part was his take on the traditional mowing down of wildflower meadows at the end of summer in July or August. While this improves plant diversity, it does nothing for late summer flying pollinators, which accounts for about 62% of all pollinating species in the UK. It also impacts on those invertebrates in general who are already completing their life cycles and are looking to overwinter in longer vegetation. Yeah, things like grasshoppers and crickets. Yeah. You know, they're doing most of their life later on in the year in the summer indeed instead he suggests that we cut on a rotation leaving some areas longer for later and even over winter to give as many different species a chance in an area though i do recognize that this management is more relevant to those of you with large gardens 
Something that all of us can do, though, is to plant a bigger diversity of flowering plants in our gardens. Plant more plants. <laughs> yeah, I was going to come on to that. And therefore, to spread flowering over the whole year. So really and truly, a, a big, as big a diversity of plant that you can fit into your garden is just such a great thing because you will get a bigger diversity of pollinators if you do that. Yeah, this thing about leaving grass longer for the insects that are around later on in the summer is also something that was picked up by uh, Dr Ian Bedford mm. the entomologist who is our guest on the next episode of the podcast so it's something that we're going to return to next year uh, probably before No Mo May comes around and we're going to give you a bit of an updated advice on the best way to manage grass in your own gardens. Yeah so keep listening folks. While the book recognises that we can all do our bit to notice and to benefit the non-human elements of our gardens and urban areas, Jeff does recognise that our gardens and parks are simply not a substitute for healthy rural environments, in particular our agricultural land, which in the UK amounts to about 70% of the land mass. And the closing chapters of the book actually talk about managing, restoring and connecting habitats, including all the work that is happening and what needs to happen to conserve our pollinators. So it is a really fantastic resource for anyone that is interested in those topics and particularly rewilding as well. As a final bit, I'll just leave you with a direct quote from the book from Jeff to remind us all of why we garden for wildlife. I cannot imagine being a scientist without a garden, as Francis Bacon said, it is the purest of human pleasures. However, he was writing in the 16th century before the advent of pesticides, herbicides, inorganic fertilisers, electric mowers and other gardening modernities that one way or another can have a profound environmental impact. Good gardening must be tempered with a sense of how we go about those activities in a way that minimises that impact. Well, thank you very much, Ellie. You have to read that book, Ben. Yes, I do. <laughs> like all the other ones that you've done so far. <laughs> I've actually, I'm terrible. When I've got a book to read, I just read something else. So I know I'm supposed to be reading that book, but right now I'm reading a book from the Natural History Museum about human evolution over one million years. <laughs> Which isn't exactly on topic. On topic. (laughs) Anyway, before we go on to our native plant of the week, um, I've got an offer to make to all of you listeners out there. We have plans for a question and answer session, but we need your questions. So once we have five questions, just five questions in our inbox, we will set a date and we'll invite you all along. You can watch it live over on our YouTube channel, and then we'll also record it for a podcast episode ask us whatever you've always wanted to know about wildlife gardening and if we don't know we will find the answer cool and we also wanted to mention that we've had a fair few people asking for specific advice for their own gardens and we can't give you all individual advice for free because that's our job yeah Sorry, we have guys. now over a thousand regular listeners <laughs> so if we actually answered all of your individual questions we wouldn't be able to go out and work no, we wouldn't be able to eat <laughs> And we like food. Yeah. Um, indeed, we've actually got a consultation service if anyone actually wants it. We don't travel that far out of Nottingham, but can always give you advice over Zoom or Skype. So if you want detailed individual advice, head over to the consultation page on our website, elliswellies.com. If you have, however, general questions, do send them in and we will cover them as part of the Q&A so that everyone can listen into the answers. Yes, indeed. 
In exchange, if you're finding the advice in this podcast useful, please consider donating to our GoFundMe page. Link, as always, in the show notes. We're only about 30 donations away from our target for the whole year, and we will be reading out all the wonderful listeners who've donated recently in the next episode. So if you want to hear your name on the podcast, get donating, and you can donate privately too, of course, if you don't want to hear your name. But (laughs) enough of that now, and on to the native plant of the week. This time we are looking at Prunus spinosa, otherwise known as the blackthorn. The gin shrub. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. That says something about what's going on in your mind, doesn't it? (laughs) I mean, it's gin o'clock, isn't it? Yeah, (laughs) it actually is, yeah. (laughs) Blackthorn is a large shrub or small tree, up to around four metres tall, although I have read people saying it can go up to six metres tall, but that's much bigger than I've ever seen it. It's found in hedgerows and woodland, and it paints the landscape with millions upon millions of shining white flowers in spring. Now, it's distinguished from the also white-flowered hawthorn by the fact that it flowers first, and the flowers emerge before the leaves, so these flowers come out on the bare stems, whereas hawthorn actually comes into leaf before it comes into flower. And if you can't recognise the tree, like Ellie said, you may well know the blackthorn for its fruits, the blue-black slow, which makes one of the finest drinks ever invented, which is slow gin, of course. Yum. Yum. But to the name first, the genera name, or the generic name, prunus, comes from the Latin prunum, meaning plum or prune. And the spinoza part, which is the specific epithet, comes from the simple fact that it is spiny. So you might start to recognise other plants with a similar word at the end, like the spiny bear's britches, a common garden plant. That is Acanthus spinosus, which is just saying that it's spiny. And I don't think we've actually said before that this combination of the generic name and the specific epithet is what makes up all plant names. So that's the first and the second part. The common name blackthorn is easy to explain as the bark is grooved and it's actually near black and the whole tree is covered by bloody great thorns (laughs) which start out actually as really soft velvety side shoots before toughening into these things that can just sort of puncture your bike and I've had to do quite a few puncture repairs on my bike cycling around the countryside. And your arms if you're me pruning it. Yes that's true. (laughs) I've been punctured by many a blackthorn (laughs) I think. But those thorns provide incredible shelter for birds and along with the abundant flowers so early in the year, the fruits late on and the fact that it is a favoured overwintering spot for a number of moths and butterflies, blackthorn stacks up to be one fantastic plant for wildlife. Its natural range stretches right across the British Isles and Ireland, although it's actually less common in the highlands of Scotland. Its native range overall encompasses Algeria and Tunisia all the way to the south, then through Europe and on into the Middle East and Central Asia as far as Iran and Kazakhstan. And it can be found everywhere from river valleys and rocky slopes to meadows and pasture too. In Britain, it will grow from sea level up to 500 metres above at Crossfell in Cumbria and I actually couldn't find a figure for how high it grows elsewhere in the world. But looking back at previous native plants of the week, I imagine that it actually grows much higher than that elsewhere Mm. in Europe. Now, given its extensive range, it's no surprise that blackthorn has a really long history of use by humans. In fact, the seeds of sloes were found in the near 5,000-year-old body of Utsi 
found buried deep in the snow on an Alpine Pass in 1991. So Utzi, whoever he was, um, this is the one, um, there's been loads of documentaries made about him. He was found with an arrow in the back. Mm. So he was, you know, walking across a mountain and was shot for some reason. Um, He'd actually been feeding on Blackthorn before before he died. Did you get this from your book on the history of humans? I didn't, but I'm sure he's in there. (laughs) Over time, the leaves of blackthorn have been used to bulk out tea. Bundles of its twigs have been buried to improve drainage on farmland. And the wood itself has been highly prized due to its hardness, having been used to make the teeth of hayrakes and also being the traditional wood to make, and I'm sorry to anybody from Ireland who's listening to me pronounce this, I think it's called a shillilag which is a sort of walking... I've seen them, but I don't, I've never heard anybody say the word, but it's a sort of walking stick combatant, which is used to beat people off. It's, oh. <laughs> oh, do, you, do they keep... Do they keep the, the wrong way to phrase so, yeah, no, Oh, I didn't even pick up on that. Which is used oh, for self-defence. <laughs> Moving on very swiftly. Do they, do they keep the spines on them for that purpose? No, oh, no, no, no. They're really okay. highly polished as okay. well. It was even said that witches' staffs and brooms were actually made from blackthorn wood too. Finally, it has been widely grown as a nursery plant, and this means a plant that's grown up to protect other plants. And you often hear this um, talked about with regard to rewilding, because you can grow these nursery plants like blackthorn or hawthorn, even bramble, and then you allow the trees to grow up through them, and those spiny, thorny shrubs are doing the work of protecting the trees from being grazed down by deer and rabbits. So now you've got a better idea of the plant that we're talking about, let's discuss the sexual antics of the blackthorn. Blackthorn has hermaphroditic flowers, meaning both the male and female parts are present within a single flower. The flowers have five white petals around five to eight millimeters long which are surrounded when in bud by five green sepals and if you take a flower and turn it around when it's open you'll see those five pointy sepals at the back inside the flower there are up to 20 stamen with yellow or red anthers which hold the pollen so that's the male part and a single female stigma quite similar to the hawthorn then when you actually look at the flower oh the flowers the look very shape. very similar yeah exactly yeah. that's why they're often confused because mm. they, they're both super spiny they're both mm. about the same size and the flowers look really similar too the flowers develop singly or in pairs held on short stalks and appear between march and may and i read in one paper that it's early flowering then plants in the same family so that's the rosacea family things like the hawthorn but also the dog rose um, is actually an evolved response to limit competition for pollinators because of course if you if all of the plants in one family come out at the same time then they're in competition for a finite number of bees and flies and Mm. moss and so on so actually these three early flowering plants actually don't tend to overlap too much over their flowering period once pollinated the fruits which are technically a droop and a droop is any simple fruit with a seed in the center so that's things like well all all the plums you know there's one one seed in the center surrounded by that flesh those fruits appear in late summer and in autumn they're blue black but they actually have a white bloom on the surface and they can persist on shrubs right through the winter they start out rock hard and then they can soften after frost which is what you need for slow gin but lots of people want to go out and pick um 
you know, the berries force those in at this time of year, but of course there haven't been any frosts. So it shows you how these sort of traditional recipes are giving you clues as to the timings of mm. the year that was in the past. And now people are more often, they're not having to go and pick the berries and stick them in the freezer to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you actually wait until there's a frost, often there's a good chance that they're, they're going over or the birds have had them already by then. Yeah, very slim window, I'd say. Yeah, and actually one of my favourite things to do when I take people out who aren't so used to the countryside is to go and give them one of these to eat because they're not poisonous, but they... Astringent, Yeah, they completely (laughs) dry your mouth out, totally. It's an amazing property and it's just just funny to watch. You're a nasty... uh, walking tour guide yeah, that's true. <laughs> remind me not to like encourage people to go with you yes but the reason i've done it i've done it on foraging courses and things before to make sure people know what there is that they're eating hard taskmaster. yeah <laughs> as to what actually pollinates the flowers they're attractive to loads of insects particularly to the diptera the flies like Yay. i was describing earlier yeah things like the yellow dung fly and the bean seed fly. They're also attractive to garden favourites like the buff-tailed bumblebee and the orange-tailed mining bee and the common carder bee too. Honourable mention, however, needs to go to the species using leaves as a food plant. I went on to DBIF, which is the database of insects and their food plants, and that has records for a whopping 261 different species that actually chomp on the blackthorn foliage. The leaves seem particularly attractive to weevils, and we don't often cover weevils. Um, This one has no common name, but Curculio betulae. So there's a weevil for you to all look up. And also to the larvae of moths included the clouded silver, the lunar spotted pinion. Oh, that's a good one. That is a nice name, isn't it? And the dark dagger as well. And it is the only food plant for the slow carpet. And carpets are a type of moth as well. Hmm. I was worried you were going to read out all 261 species for a minute. (laughs) (laughs) Going back to the pollinators, though, we should probably say that there's probably a lot more. Like now we've read the book by Jeff Ollerton. Oh, exactly. There's 261 there, but that's only because people have bothered to write them down and or have seen them. Yeah. So next spring, guys, get, get observing. See if you can spot anything on your blackthorn. Yeah, definitely. Most important of all, and only important because of their rarity... The eggs of the brown and black hair streak butterflies are laid on young, specifically young, blackthorn growth. Now, both of these species are in decline. They're actually highly protected. So it's important to understand how their life cycle works. In the summer, they lay their eggs onto this young growth. And then in spring, those eggs hatch and the caterpillars feed on the developing flower buds before the flowers actually open. And then they pupate in June and... The black hair streak has a fantastic way of camouflaging the pupae, which is that they look exactly like a bird poo. (laughs) So they've got a sort of brown and black and white coloration to them, which naturally makes them less attractive to predators, of course. But you have to look it up because it's such a stunning camouflage. It really is fantastic. Well, stunningly effective (laughs) is what I would say. Campouflage. Oh, no. No. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry moving on before we tell you how to grow it in your garden we have to give you a bit of a fair warning about this plant blackthorn has a distinct habit of sending out suckers so these are roots that grow underground where you can't see them and it sends up a shoot and often if you've got a blackthorn too near to a flower border then those shoots those suckers can come up right in the middle of the border where you don't want them Now, there's no real way of stopping this apart from chopping those suckers off, which is 
easy to do if you've got access to the area surrounding the plant but not like i say if you've got a flower border right against a hedge or somewhere where a blackthorn's growing so in a large garden it's definitely not a problem but i would just not plant it right next to uh, uh somewhere where you couldn't access instead include it as part of a hedge or even as a freestanding tree as long as you can keep the area next to it clear or even just moan so if you're going to mow over that area it will stop those those suckers coming up and then you shouldn't have too much trouble of course if you do have a lot of room and you've got space for a big thicket of blackthorn just for the sake of wildlife then of course it's really great to have too so as i say probably not one for a small garden and you should watch out when you're buying native hedging packs, which we often recommend because sometimes they will have blackthorn in and sometimes they won't. So if you're in a small garden and you want a native hedge, probably look for one without blackthorn in the mix. We often handpick the species in small gardens in yes. particular just to make sure that doesn't happen. Yeah, no problem with hawthorn. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fine. Um, but well, actually anything, you find this a lot with plums as well because the when you buy a cultivated plum, a big one for eating, they're often grafted onto a rootstock, which is actually a different plant altogether. And that rootstock often has the habit of suckering. And we've been in gardens where they've had an old plum tree. And then there's been loads and loads of what are actually full-size trees that have obviously come from the suckers and just people haven't noticed them until they've become too big you have to keep your eye on them don't they before you know you've got like a three meter tree growing you didn't realize was there but yeah exactly now if you are going to grow them they're not too fussy of the type of soil they don't particularly like permanent waterlogged soils but apart from that they'll suit most gardens and as for buying like i said you can get them in native hedging packs you can buy them individually as bare root whips and whips are just one year old growth they literally look like a stick Um, but they come in the winter and then you can plant them into the ground or you can go out and collect the slows to grow your own and now is the perfect time to do it just go and collect a load of fruits clean off the flesh from the outside and then you can do this just in a part of your garden scrape an area of soil back and sow them very shallowly then just cover them back over with that soil you've scraped off and wait because they need two months of cold weather to encourage that germination so just be patient and you should see seedlings come up in the following spring wait until they've then grown on for a whole year and then that following winter you can dig them up and just transplant them wherever you want of course any spare slows as we've said can be collected and stuck in a bottle of gin with some sugar lovely finally a couple of more ornamental varieties for you there is a pink cultivar called rosea and there's also a naturally occurring semi-double variety called planar and often we don't recommend double flowered plants because sometimes the extra petals actually crowd out the sexual parts in the center of the flower which are the bits that hold the pollen and the nectar of course so those are what the pollinating insects are going in for i've never seen one of these planar varieties uh, in the flesh as it were But I've had a look at the photos and the sexual parts in the centre are still accessible, so it should be absolutely fine for wildlife. All that talk of slow gin has just made me get our bottle out. And I don't know how we've managed to keep this for pretty much an entire year undrunk, but hang on very good very it's matured a fine vintage it's a fine vintage that's what we do when we put the music and the cuts in the podcast we just nip off and get a short 
doesn't always go smoothly, does it? No. Right, next episode, what have we got coming up next time? Well, we are really excited to host the entomologist and public speaker, Dr. Ian Bedford, as our next guest. Yep, the interview will be split over two parts, like we did with Helen Bostock too. Really love talking to him, fascinating chap. We have a botanical mystery about the Mezarian, which I explained earlier is actually a type of native Daphne. Oh, that's another nice smelly one. And our plant of the week will be the crab apple. And of course, we'll also be reading out all the names of you lovely donators to the podcast as well. Indeed. So until the next time, send in your questions, send in your audio clips for our gardening correspondence, and we will see you in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Bye.